What is destiny? What is your destiny? Well, the subject of destiny and fate and free will has not only filled up the, the minds and the books of uh, philosophers, but it has these have been the themes of many great movies. So Star Wars, Matrix, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Minority Report, Lambie Four Time Four, uh, Five Goes West, just to name a few. I could go on, and I'm tempted to. But uh, these weren't just great movies because they helped us understand how we can fulfill our individual destinies. <laughs> these movies didn't help us with that. No, rather they just kind of packaged the common understanding that you and the choices that you make control your destiny. Isn't that right? No one else controls your destiny. William Shakespeare said, it is not in the stars to hold our destiny, but in ourselves. J.K. Rowling said, destiny is a name often given in retrospect to choices that had dramatic consequences. Do you agree with Shakespeare and Rowling? Are the choices that you make what shape your destiny? Well, this week we come to the conclusion of a two-week series on Jesus, the child king in Matthew's gospel. You know, last week we considered Jesus prince of persia which was getting at that jesus is not just the king of the jews uh and not just the king of the east but even the king of the whole world that one true king uh, this week we'll consider the destiny of this king and just as many movies do we need to go back we need to consider in a sense like the origins or the beginnings of this king and what was prophesied about him in order to really consider his destiny his his future destiny so as we consider this story from early in jesus's life i want you to consider does the king's destiny change your destiny how does it change how you think about the choices that you make every day the choices that you're assuming shape your destiny well, let's look now at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Matthew 2, 13 through 23. So you can turn there if you don't have a Bible with you. No problem. We've got them in the pews and the chairs around you. And it's on page 1498. 1498 in the pew Bibles. Matthew 2, 13 through 23. As I read this story... Notice how Matthew is showing how Jesus' early life is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And see if you can kind of discern a structure. Uh, the headings also kind of help you out along. So let's, uh, let's, read, let's read this passage. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. 
And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Do you kind of see the structure in that passage? We have like a fulfillment, what's happening in Jesus's life, and then the prophecy. And we have that happen three times. So it forms an easy outline for us to walk through the story this morning. And uh, and this is kind of the heading sentence that will that will serve as the outline for our for the rest of our time. God's son rules over slavery. Death. And rejection. God's son rules over slavery, death, and rejection. It was the destiny of King Jesus to rule over these things because this is what was prophesied about him hundreds of years before he was even born. So, first, let's consider in verses 13 through 15 how God's son rules over our slavery. Uh, We see that in verses 13 through 15. So God's son rules over our slavery in verses 13 through 15. Let me read that again. When they had gone, that's the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus was an African refugee. The king of the world had to leave his own country as a toddler because the evil king of Jerusalem was seeking to kill him. But the father sovereignly protected the life of his anointed one. For it was this anointed one's destiny to reign. We have an early game of thrones here in this passage. You know, Camelot doesn't have anything on this story. You know, uh, the scene has quickly shifted. The Magi are before Jesus worshiping him, laying their treasures at his feet. But then a dream comes and uh, and Joseph, Mary and the child king, they're on the run from this evil King Herod. And it's urgent. You see that in the passage? Joseph gets this dream, uh, and presumably he wakes up the family in the middle of the night and says, pack your bags, we're rolling out. I just got a dream, we got to move on. 
I just had another angel t- to tell me what to do. You know, this has happened to Joseph uh, a couple times, and this isn't going to be the last time. Uh, so where does Joseph take the family? He takes them to Egypt, doesn't he? Why Egypt? Uh, well, it's to get away from Herod. You know, this, this, this is out of, outside of Herod's reign, so they go to Egypt. Uh, but do you think Joseph was thinking, you know, we should go to Egypt because uh, there's that prophecy about the Messiah that he has to come out of Egypt at some point. So we should go there. I should help my son fulfill these these prophecies. You know, no, Joseph's, <laughs> Joseph's not, is not thinking this as far as we know. Uh, we, let's turn to Hosea and you'll see that Hosea, you know, we read this passage earlier in the service, but Hosea was talking about another son. So ter- feel free to turn to Hosea 11 or, you know, casually sit by and just let me read it to you and take my word for it. So look at uh, Hosea 11, where this prophecy originates. If you're not familiar with your Bible, there should be a table of contents. I'm not sure what page it is on the pews. Uh, the full census is this, okay? So this is what sets up this prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. See that? Hosea is talking about Israel. We, we shouldn't always equate prophecy with black and white like prediction fulfillment so we we saw an example of that last week sort of where micah prophesied that the messiah would be born in bethlehem and he was prophecy fulfilled check right that's how we think of prophecy but matthew here is doing something else matthew is showing here that prophecy can also be what god did in the past is anticipating or foreshadowing what he's going to do in the future. All right? Does that make sense? What God did in the past anticipates or foreshadows what God's going to do in the future. That's how Matthew's thinking through uh, prophecy. Uh, so what's going on in Hosea? You know, Hosea is, is reflecting on God's love for his son Israel and how God called Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, at at the Exodus. But he didn't even just have that in mind. If you go on and read the rest of Hosea 11, like we did earlier, you will see that he's the the, the next line. I mean, just the next line in Hosea 11 too. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. So Hosea uh, is talking about Israel being called out of Egypt in the Exodus, and then Israel wanders from God. So this is what Matthew has in his mind when he's referencing back to Hosea 11. Uh, he's, he has in mind Israel, the disobedient son, right? Israel, the prodigal son. This is where I think we can really relate because we can, we can relate to this prodigal son. You know, we say just in our own lives, God, uh, I know you're supposed to be number one in my life, um, but I really like living for my job or for bike riding or for another hobby or my family for my retirement or just fill in the blank. At that point, we become just like Israel, the prodigal son, you know, worshiping the golden calf, just as Israel did. And we, just like Israel, 
desperately need to be freed from our slavery to ourselves and to the things of this world. Or else our destiny will be the same as that of Israel's. You know, eternal slavery to ourselves, perishing outside of the promised land. You know, for example, imagine a wife, a wife whose husband loves her and has sacrificed so much for her. But she leaves every few weeks and gives herself to a richer man who cares nothing for her. It's unthinkable. This is how we so often treat God, isn't it? When we give ourselves to the values of this world. But the good news is that our being a prodigal son, just like Israel, is not outside of God's sovereign reign. He isn't helpless at home, wringing his hands. Oh, I hope, I hope my son comes back to me. You know, I, I hope he comes back one day. No, God took the initiative. He came down from heaven to get you. He came in himself in the person of his son. He didn't just send a messenger or someone. He came down in himself, in his son. And of course, you know, the devil sees his opportunity and like a furious dragon, he goes on attack mode. Because here is the son of God, clothed in helpless human flesh. But God providentially cares for his son and he sends him to Egypt so that his son can be safe. And when all is clear, God calls his son to make an exodus out of Egypt. And unlike the Israelites, this time after the exodus, the son was faithful. The son obeyed. He perfectly obeyed his father. This son, this son, this true son, he didn't deserve judgment and death. But we know that's what he got on the cross. In our place. Yet gloriously, three days later, he rises from the dead. And the true son's resurrection that we celebrate on Easter is a kind of fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy, too. You just have to look down in Hosea 11. Uh, We read him earlier, but let me just read him again. Hosea 11, starting in verse 8. This is God speaking. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. You know, these words give us great reason to hope, don't they? Uh, because, you know, God doesn't carry out his fierce wrath and anger and devastate us like we deserve. You know, we have been unfaithful. According to Hosea, we have all been whores. And we think the lion's coming for us because we know our guilt. But when the lion shows up, he doesn't roar at us and attack us, but he attacks our enemy, sin and death. 
And he frees us from our slavery and settles us in homes of eternal rest. Uh, This is good news. But I think that so often as Christians, we live as though we are still enslaved. You know, maybe you have been viewing pornography. You know that it is wrong. You understand yourself to be a Christian. But you keep falling into this pit of lust and and spiritual adultery. What should you do? Well, 1 Peter 2 helps us. Peter says, live as free men. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. If you're really a Christian, you are free. Rejoice in your freedom. You know, you don't need to feel guilty and helpless before your sinful desires. Because Jesus, the true lion, the lion of Judah, has torn open the carcass of sin and death. And killed it in your life. He paid the penalty for all the times that you have lusted. All the times you have overeaten and gluttony. All the times you have gotten angry with your spouse. You don't need to go and now prove yourself to God. By, you know, paying him back by going to church or continually saying sorry, maybe to your spouse or living as though you are on parole with God. Because the son has set you free. So declare your freedom. How do you do this? How do you declare your freedom? Well, as Peter says, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. You know, if you are really free, it would be worth the small cost of pain and embarrassment to go to someone today and confess a a sin that you are struggling with. Maybe a hidden sin that you have kept secret. If you're really free. Small cost in comparison. You know, I encourage you, talk to someone who will point you to the gospel and help walk you through what repentance looks like for you. You know, have this conversation today. It is worth it. There's so much at stake. Because if you if we don't confess our sins, we might be fooling ourselves that we are actually free. For free people live like free people. They live as sons and daughters of the king. And Jesus, the true obedient son, gives us hope and frees us. Because it's his obedience that is credited to our account so that we can be free. So we can be welcomed in, not hanging our heads, feeling ashamed and feeling sorry for ourselves as second-rate children. We can come into God's presence as full heirs, children of God. You know, John 8 says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came as the true son to set us free. You know, when he served as a refugee in Egypt, he was mirroring our experience. He went into slavery and became familiar with our struggles. He 
became familiar with our temptations, our pain, our homelessness. You know, what a tender and personal God that we have. And then he came out of Egypt as the true son to lead all true sons and daughters who would follow him by declaring their independence from the fleeting pleasures of this world. You know, but our king doesn't only lead us out of slavery as kind of a Moses 2.0. He's done more than that. He rules over death. And that's what we're going to consider second. God's son rules over our death. We see this in verses 16 through 18. Let's read those verses again. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, Herod had asked the Magi to report back to him once they found this child king who, according to when the star appeared, they were guessing was two years old or younger. Uh, However, the Magi, as you know, from verse 12, are warned in a dream and they don't go and report back to Herod. They return to their country by another route. Uh, And this makes Herod furious. And in his fury... He mass murders probably around a dozen or so baby boys to and under in Bethlehem and its vicinity. Uh, This mass murder is entirely keeping with what we know of Herod through the other historical records that we have. He was a tyrant. He was cruel. He killed his members of his own family. What we want to ask now in this kind of seculent second Uh, formula that we have of of fulfillment and prophecy is how this horrible slaughter fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah. Well, feel free to turn to Jeremiah now. Jeremiah 31. You know, Matthew is using the passage which he's quoting in Jeremiah 31, 15, very similarly to how he used Hosea 11 earlier. Let me read part of Jeremiah 31:15 in its context so we can get a better idea of what Matthew's doing here. You know, later I would encourage you to go back and read all of Jeremiah 31. We don't have time to read the whole chapter now, but it is a stunning picture. Go back and read Jeremiah 31 this afternoon if you have a chance. I'll start in Jeremiah 31:13. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Do you see how this weeping of Rachel in verse 15 that Matthew quotes is surrounded 
by joy and comfort. We have maidens dancing and we have being told, stop your weeping. They're going to return. So, you know, what is uh, what's Jeremiah talking about here in Jeremiah 31? Well, in verse 15, specifically, Rachel is the mother of Israel. Why is she weeping? It's because her people, her children, Israel, are being exiled to Babylon. Yet, the hope for Rachel in this passage is that her children will return to Israel. And they do. Another one of God's promises kept. So, one reason Matthew uses the words of Jeremiah here is when recalling the horrible evil of Herod and and the babies in Bethlehem, it's because he understands that there is hope in the midst of unspeakable pain. That there is hope. Just as Israel took comfort in the promise that their nation would return one day from exile, so Matthew sees a glimmer of hope that even though Herod succeeded in killing babies in Bethlehem, he did not succeed in killing the baby who would reign over sin and death. And there's even more comfort here. Even in this horrible event, Matthew's showing us that the slaying of the Bethlehem babies proves that God's people are still in exile. They are not yet freed from the final exile of death. You know, God had gotten the people back to the land, but they were still in exile to the curse of death and the evil of the nations. God had not yet given them the new heart that he promised in Jeremiah 31. So just as God promised weeping Rachel that her children would return in Jeremiah, here in Matthew, God is showing us that the tears of that through the tears of Bethlehem, the sun is now rising on the end of the spiritual exile to death. D.A. Carson, a theologian, explains it like this. The tears of the exile are now being fulfilled, i.e., the tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true son of God has arrived and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. The exile to death is over? Really? You know, it doesn't take a genius to know that it still feels like we are in an exile to death. You know, in fact, the stone cold grip of death seems stronger than ever. I only have to say Sandy Hook Elementary, Clackamas Town Center, Columbine, the Holocaust. Now, why are we insane? I mean, why do we celebrate the birth of this baby Jesus and his resurrection at Easter if he can't stop horrible evils such as these? And it gets personal, too, doesn't it? You know, God doesn't promise you children who will live longer than you. God doesn't promise you children who will make wise choices. God doesn't promise you children. God doesn't promise us health. God doesn't promise us wealth. God doesn't promise us happiness in this life. 
God doesn't promise us employment. He doesn't promise us retirement. He doesn't promise us secure markets and bank accounts. He doesn't promise you a spouse or the spouse of your dreams or the children of your dreams. So what does he promise us then? What are we left with? Well, one thing he promises us is war. For that's what Jesus is born into here. We see that Jesus was born into a war zone. You know, before Jesus could even speak as a child, he's fleeing as a toddler because a king who is raised up to protect the innocent, protect the helpless, do justice, is trying to kill him. The child escapes, not without slaughter along the way, but it's only a matter of time until the hunter catches up with the prey. So why should we expect anything different as Christians? If this is what happened to our king, if this is how our leader and king was treated in this life, should we expect to be treated any differently? You know, let's make a resolution this year to stop using God for what we really want. Lives free of pain and suffering. Leave it to beaver families. Secure bank accounts. Instead, let's rejoice that this inhumane evil that we know is Satan's last-ditch effort before Christ returns and makes everything new and makes everything right. For the devil is raging right now because his time is short and he knows it. That makes him livid. And who is he going to target in this war? Well, things, things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. You know, he goes after children. It was, and it was a child who escaped to Egypt and uprooted Satan's design. So he goes after the babies of Bethlehem. You know, he thought he had captured this promised child after 30 or so years by getting him nailed to the cross, cursed and forsaken by God. But it was by that cross that God disarmed the enemy and made a public spectacle of him and triumphing over him. When children die, we are reminded that the final triumph is not yet here. You know, that Satan still has real evil power and that he is going to use it until he's finally crushed under King Jesus' feet. You know, I can't think of many things worse than violence to children. But we see here that even at the first Christmas, in a sense, it was there. But in a strange way, Matthew's showing us here that this is the beginning of the end. You know, the tears of the mother of Bethlehem and the sobs of the parents of Sandy Hook are signaling us that the night is darkest before the dawn. The sun is going to rise. Christ will return and God's children will return to the land of the king. The land of the living, no longer exiled by death. You know, listen to these words of comfort again from Jeremiah 31. Restrain your voice from weeping 
and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. You know, God's son sovereignly reigns over death and evil. He tasted death. He tasted the sharp edge of evil himself. So that death would no longer sting. You know, because we death is not the end. Death is not the end for children. Death is not the final chapter. C.H. Spurgeon, in his excellent little devotional, Morning and Evening, says this for the morning of December 1st. Winter in the soul is by no means a comfortable season. And if it is upon you just now, it will be very painful to you. But there is this comfort, namely that the Lord makes it. He sends the sharp blasts of adversity to nip the buds of expectation. He scatters the frozen dew like ashes over the once fresh green meadows of our joy. He dispenses his icy morsels freezing the streams of our delight. He does it all. He is the great winter king and rules in the realms of frost. And therefore, you cannot murmur. Losses, crosses, heaviness, sickness, poverty, and a thousand other ills are of the Lord's sending and come to us with wise design. Will you trust the king of the winter now? Summer's coming, and he reigns over both winter and summer. Well, finally, we should consider how God's Son rules over rejection. We see this starting in verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. So an angel comes to Joseph and tells him in another dream that Herod's dead and the coast is clear. You can return to Israel. But Archelaus, Herod's son, who is just as insane as his father, uh, is reigning where they most naturally go in southern part of Israel. So they settle down in a northern town of Israel, a little podunk town called Nazareth, a town that everybody makes fun of. Uh, notice that this fulfills not a specific prophecy like in the first two, but it fulfills uh, what was spoken by the prophets, plural. You see that? So you're welcome to go ahead and look through your Old Testament trying to find a prophecy about the Messiah being from Nazareth, but uh, it doesn't get that quite that specific. You're going to have a hard time finding something. Uh, so what prophets and prophecies did Matthew have in mind here? Well, Matthew's using a little play on words. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, the word for branch is similar to the word for Nazareth. And just listen to what Isaiah 11 says, the prophecy from Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a 
branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And then this prophecy goes on. Again, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 11 this afternoon. It will encourage you, I promise. Uh, to, and it describes this new era that the Messiah will usher in, uh, where the wolf lies down with the lamb, and uh, the, the whole world is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, this all happens because the branch, or the Nazarene, similar word, has come. And with the incarnation of Jesus, the branch has begun to bud. You know, but it's not yet summer. Hasn't fully borne fruit. The earth is not yet full of the knowledge of the Lord. We know that the wolves aren't lying down with lambs. Therefore, when Matthew says that Jesus will be called a Nazarene here, the Jews would have called to mind this prophecy from Isaiah 11, this Davidic messianic branch that comes to usher in this new era. Their hearts would have leaped within them at the thought that this time was arriving. But the Jews would have also had another reaction to hearing that the Messiah was a Nazarene. In the Gospel of John, Nathaniel, upon hearing that his brother had met the Messiah from Nazareth, said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Because Nazarenes were scorned by southern Jews. They were, to be a Nazarene was to be one who was rejected and of little account. Thus, Jesus fulfills prophecies like Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. You know, many people still today despise and reject King Jesus. You know, we think of maybe atheists or Muslims or maybe even Mormons. Uh, yet it's church people who can despise and reject Jesus too. People who claim the title of Christian, maybe come to church regularly, maybe give to the church. Yet they go and live lives that make the king weep. For church people love to use God. God is our means to a happier life. Purpose. A life free from pain and suffering. A way for us to feel better about ourselves. You know, the, we think the church, you know, the church will make our children moral. Our charity will get us favor with God. But if we use God like this as a means to an end, it is simply a rejection of him. For he comes to reign over us, not to be used for our piddly little means or ends. Let me ask you a question that may help you discern if you are living under God's reign as opposed to using him for your own purposes. Has anyone ever despised or rejected you for being a Christian? Or when was the last time someone despised or rejected you for being a Christian? You know, next time you have maybe a family gathering, is there a small way that you can be faithful to your allegiance 
to the king. Now, I don't have in mind preaching a sermon at next Thanksgiving or rebuking publicly some family member for their sinful lifestyle. But what about how can you answer just really simple, ordinary, mundane questions about, like, how is work going? How's the family doing? How is your how is your weekend? Maybe using that as just an opportunity to briefly yet provocatively prove that you are a son and daughter of the king and just how you think through the mundane areas of life. Think about what that would look like in those conversations. You know, pledging allegiance to the king in the midst of family and friends will make things awkward. It will. Uh, You will be even maybe despised and rejected by your family or your friends. But this should not surprise us. You know, maybe you're feeling guilty right now because you've been sort of an undercover follower of Jesus. But the good news is that even the son even rules over your rejection of Jesus by following him undercover. Because that is rejection. You know, our subtle rejection of him, though, is defeated by his love. So turn to him now and ask him to make you a faithful follower of him, one who is willing to speak publicly for him. You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you have known rejection in your family or amongst your friends because of your allegiance to the king. Well, Christian, the king and his followers will not be rejected forever. For the son of God came to rule over rejection. And rejection will not be the final word. For those who have despised the king will be rejected by the king. Those who ridicule the children of the king, who put them to death, will receive their judgment. And the king will finally bring an end to sin, death, and rejection. Now Bethlehem and Sandy Hook will soon be made right. For the king rules over sin. The king rules over death. The king rules over rejection. And even in his strange, mysterious providence, uses these as instruments in his hands for his good purposes. Another D.A. Carson quote from his excellent book on suffering called How Long, O Lord. He writes, We begin to wonder if some pain and sorrow in this life is not used in God's providential hand to make us homesick for heaven, to detach us from this world, to prepare us for heaven, to draw our attention to himself and away from the world of merely physical things. In short, we begin to look at all of life's experiences, good and ill, from the vantage of the end. Christian, God's son rules over your destiny. And if the end is fixed, it changes your today. God's son reigns and he is in control. God was even in control as his son was on the cross and breathed his last breath and said, it is finished. But it wasn't finished for the son. No, it had just begun. Life had just begun. And life began then. 
for all those whose lives are hidden with Christ. Those who follow this king here in the wintertime will reign and worship him eternally in the perfect joy of the summer when he returns. The fury of Herod and this broken world will be left behind and be a distant memory. And everything will be made new and right. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we come before you now as your servants. And you reign. We confess that you reign. Lord, we do not know what the future holds for us. We don't know the suffering and the pain that tomorrow might bring. But Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence. Because we know that suffering and pain will not be the final word for those whose lives are hidden in you. Instead, it will be eternal joy. Eternal delight of worshiping you before your throne. So, Lord, we pray that you would come quickly and make all things new. We pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.